The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Flack Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Church, we have turned the sanctuary into a high school biology lab, sort of. We're dissecting hearts, our own hearts. We're opening them up, we're looking inside, and we're asking, what are the instincts and impulses that guide us? What do we really care about? When, when the pressure is on, when the heat is turned up, when our brains go on autopilot, when we're just plain reacting to, to the people around us and the world around us, what do our hearts tell us to do? We began this series by studying how our hearts, our, our go-to touchstones, govern our actions, direct our steps. You are what you love. Next, we pivoted to talking about what it means to love God. Loving God, we concluded, involves loving the same things that God loves. Last week, we started considering the things God loves. We began with justice. God loves justice. What does it look like, we asked, when we love justice too? This week, our attention turns to mercy. God loves mercy. What does that mean? What will that require of us? Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us first from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, beginning with the 21st verse. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him 
and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, he went out and came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused. And he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Our second reading for this morning comes from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, beginning with the 22nd verse. It might sound familiar to you. This, uh, these verses are the background of one of your favorite hymns. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. God, Scripture says, loves mercy. God, the book of Psalms says, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is merciful and forgiving, says the prophet Daniel. God, the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, being rich in mercy and full of love for us, sent Jesus to save us. God delights, the prophet Micah assures us, in showing mercy. So much mercy, tons of, of mercy. The good book tells us 262 different times. It tells us that God is merciful, that God loves mercy, why the repetition? Why this emphasis on mercy, mercy, mercy? Well, let's start with the most obvious answer to that question. It's true. <laughs> Scripture emphasizes mercy because God is merciful. You might even argue that God has to be merciful in order to deal with us. How else can the Holy One approach us Messed up, self-centered, cranky, bitter, bruised by life, us. One of my preaching heroes, Fred Craddock, tells the story of being out in the country with his family 
on a Sunday afternoon going for a drive. As they're rambling along, his, his two children in the back seat start to pound on his shoulder. Daddy, Daddy, we have to stop. There's a kitten back there on the side of the road. So there's a kitten back there on the side of the road. We are having a drive. We have to stop and pick it up. No, we don't have to stop and pick it up. We are having a nice drive. But if we don't stop and pick it up, it will die. Well, then, it will die. We don't have room for one more animal in our house. It's already a zoo. No more animals. We never thought our daddy would be so mean and cruel as to let a kitten die. At this, Fred's wife intercedes, dear, you're going to have to stop. So he turns the car around, he returns to the spot, and he instructs the kids, you two stay in the car, let me see what we're dealing with. The barely recognizable kitten is skin and bones, sore-eyed, full of fleas. It's a miserable little creature, barely clinging to life. Still, as Fred reaches down to pick it up with its last energy, it bristles, it hisses, a tiny paw lashes out and scratches his hand. Picking it up by the scruff of its neck, wrapping it in a blanket, he tosses it in the back seat of the car. Don't touch it, it probably has leprosy. Back home they go. The children give the kitten multiple baths, about a gallon of warm milk. They fix it a comfy bed, fit for a pharaoh. Several weeks pass. Then one morning, in the quiet of the morning, while reading the paper, Fred feels something rub against his leg. He reaches down, and this time the cat arches its back to receive his caress. Not long ago, Fred writes, God reached down to bless me and my family. And when God did, I looked at that hand, and it was covered with scratches. Mercy, we say, is God's fundamental posture toward us. God's mercies, says the book of Lamentations, never come to an end. God reaches out to us again and again, is persistent. This is who God is, the one with the scratched hands. But of course, the good book doesn't stop there. It describes mercy as something that flows from God, but also as something that we are supposed to emulate. The Bible encourages us to fill our hearts with sweet mercy, to allow mercy to season every word, every action, to guide us through our days. And here, I think, Scripture has some work to do. Because deep down, we don't think mercy can cut it. Mercy, we're convinced, is a downright foolish way to approach this hard-knock world. We live in New York. We work in places here that demand results. Your mama might think you hung the moon, but unless your team's numbers look better, unless the project's done on time, unless the presentation is on point, you'd best be packing your bags. Mercy doesn't get the job done. Mercy doesn't help the bottom line. Our results-oriented culture encourages us to leave mercy at home 
to use it, if we have to, with friends and family. Although we're not completely sure that mercy is the right response to family either. Some days, maybe even most days, mercy feels like a wimpy and inadequate response to bad behavior and wrongdoing. And now it's okay if God has bottomless reserves of forgiveness. It's okay if God's an indulgent parent who looks at humanity and says, no matter what you've done, you still belong to me. You you can still have cookies. You can still run down the road toward home and I will get on the road and run toward you. It's okay if God wants to be that way. That's God's choice. But, But me? Let mercy govern my heart? Make mercy my default mode? I don't want to be that vulnerable. I don't want to be a doormat for other people. I don't want to excuse the wrongs that have been done to me or to others I love. My mind balks at this. I can't lead with mercy. I say this in part, I mean this, because of conversations that I've had with all of you. Over the years, you've sat in my office and told me stories of things that have happened to you at work, at school, in church, at home. Stories that have made me ache for you and for the world. I would never respond to you, well, first step, you've got to be merciful. You've got to forgive the person who just ripped your life apart. I don't advocate for mercy right out of the gate. Why? Well, mostly because I don't want to get punched in the nose, but but also because it's the wrong response. To respond to wrongdoing with a quick call for forgiveness is to ask the victim of misconduct to undergo a second injury. It's it's to diminish that person's pain and, and the other person's transgressions. But wait, wait, come on, preacher. What about Jesus? I mean, after all, Jesus is is in the forgiveness business. He's he's trying to forgive, well, everyone for their sins. And and Christ challenges his disciples to do the same, to be galactically, impossibly generous in offering forgiveness to other people. In, In today's text, Peter comes up to Jesus and asks, Lord, If another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? I mean, I should go up to as many as seven times? And Jesus says to him, no, 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 no. Not seven, 77 times. The next sound that we hear, Scripture tells us, is Peter popping Jesus in the nose. No, that doesn't happen. But the exchange here makes you wonder. The the tension in it makes you wonder. What kind of crazy standards does Jesus have when it comes to showing mercy? To answer, he tells us a parable. There was a king who decided it was time to settle accounts. In the midst of calling in his debtors, the king comes face to face with a servant who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? Well, let's do a little math. A day laborer 
A, a common servant in the ancient world would earn one denarii a day. And so figuring on a six-day work week with Sabbath off, that would come to about 300 denarii a year. If this laborer worked for 20 years at 300 denarii a year, he or she would earn 6,000 denarii. Now that number is significant because 6,000 denarii equals one talent. The dude in Jesus' story owes the king 10,000 talents or the equivalent of 200,000 years of labor. If you prefer modern currency, the man's debt to the king totals out at a little over $7 billion. This servant has a ridiculously huge balance on his credit card. So the king orders the man and the man's wife and the man's children and all of his possessions sold. The man pleads with the king, have patience with me, I'll pay you back. I'm imagining the disciples start laughing at that part in Jesus' story. Yeah, right, 200,000 years from now you'll pay him back. Even the king knows that the man has made an impossible promise. So what does he do? He shows the man mercy. The king says, I forgive your debt. Leaving the palace, the man who has just had an impossibly huge debt erased from the books spots someone who owes him money. This fellow owes him 100 denarii, or the equivalent of about $11,000. It's a sizable sum, so he pounces. He grabs the guy by the neck. The man pleads for mercy. He promises to pay the money back. Sound familiar? Although this time it's not an impossible promise. It would take about three months for him to pay it back. But it doesn't matter. The first servant wants to exact a price for the debt. And he throws the man into prison. Now it turns out that other servants have been watching all this transpire from the shadows. And uh, one of them, a whistleblower, files a report. The king reads it. And he calls the unmerciful servant back to the throne room. The king thunders, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So says Jesus, looking Peter and his question about forgiveness square in the eye. So my heavenly Father will also do this to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Whoa. Where does the story leave us? Is, is God merciful or not? <laughs> At first, the king looks incredibly merciful. He forgives a massive debt. He picks up a flea bag of a kitten alongside the road and gives it a second chance. What a good guy. But then, when he hears that the very servant he has forgiven is not willing to forgive others, 
Well, bada-bing, bada-boom, the king turns vengeful. You don't want to cross this monarch. Is that the message in Jesus' parable? Be merciful or else. Doesn't the threat of eternal torture sort of undercut the case for mercy here? Let's think about that for a bit. To start, we have to ask, what exactly is mercy? Is mercy the same thing as forgiveness? Now, I think that's a good question. We often use mercy and forgiveness synonymously. I forgave her for running over my roses. I was merciful after he washed my whites with his bright orange T-shirt. But at other times, the way that we use mercy doesn't sound like forgiveness. Not really. Life is hard right now. I just got some bad news from my doctor. I sure could use a little mercy. When we use mercy in in that way, it it, it seems more like a cry for for relief, for help, for for catching a break. it's, it's, it's to ask that a burden be lifted when we're struggling. And, and I think this sentiment is reflected in one of the oldest liturgies in Christianity, the Song Kyrie. Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. This triad has been sung countless times by Christians down through the centuries. It even made an appearance at number one on the Billboard chart in 1985 as a pop song by the somewhat forgettable group Mr. Mister. You remember it, some of you. Kyrie eleison down the road that I must travel. Kyrie eleison through the darkness of the night. Kyrie eleison, where I'm going, will you follow? Kyrie eleison, on a highway in the light. There's a great scene in one of my favorite movies, The Way, Way Back, where a number of messed up people are in a cottage by the beach, I think they're out at the Hamptons somewhere, dancing to this song, and one of the characters, perhaps the most messed up character of them all, played by by Amanda Pete is singing the refrain of the song as carry a laser (laughs) (laughs) carry a laser she sings down the road that I must travel Now, now the irony here an irony that I know the director is hoping we'll get is that these people who are hurting each other a lot don't need lasers they need They desperately need mercy. At at the heart of the church's word for mercy, eleison, is the word elios. Elios is the old Greek word for olive oil, a substance which was used in the ancient world medicinally. People would pour olive oil onto cuts. They would massage it into bruises. They would soothe and comfort and try to heal each other with it. 
So in other words, to sing Kyrie eleison is to pray, Lord, soothe me, comfort me, take away my pain, and heal me. And this cry for help is is so important to us that we make space for it here every week in worship. Every week, one of the members of the clergy stands at the baptismal font and we pray a prayer of confession, confessing our brokenness to God. And every week, we listen to the assurance of pardon for God's mercy to be proclaimed. I was once talking to a member of this church who was going through a really tough time. His marriage was in a precarious place, and his actions had played a significant role in putting it there. Scott, he said to me, no offense to the preaching or the choir, but right now I'm coming to worship for one reason. I need to confess and hear someone say, God is merciful. When I, when I hear the words, you are forgiven, it is like rain in the desert, man. That assurance is the only solid thing under my feet right now. I suspect that there are times for all of us when the confession and pardon are the most important part of worship. There are times when the only thing we need out of this time is an opportunity to sing Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. And this tosses us back into the arms of today's parable. Does Jesus, we need to know, does Jesus tell us this story to warn us that God is suddenly going to turn vengeful. Watch out, God is firing up the hot irons. God is eager to torture those who fail to show mercy. Is that what this story is about? Or is Jesus simply telling us the truth? Old hurts and resentments do a number on us. They can torture us. You know they can They cling to our hearts, they hold us hostage, and sometimes we kind of like it that way. We give our resentments free reign, we pamper our grudges, we feel strangely righteous as they grind away in our gut. Jesus knows this. He knows that before we can even start to think about forgiveness, we need to invite a radical new perspective into our heart. We need mercy. Mercy. Mercy is a realization. It's the recognition that life is hard and that everyone around us, everyone in this room has been bruised. Mercy is thanksgiving, too. It's the freedom that comes when God says, your $7 billion debt to me has been wiped out. And mercy is empathy. It's the call to stand alongside those who are struggling. 
It's, it's Christ hanging on the cross, looking to his side at the crucified thief there and declaring, truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Mercy is the beginning of compassion. And, and I think it's this this sort of compassion that, that, that tugs at our hearts when, when Mary Gaucher sings her hard scrabble folk song, Mercy Now. My father could use a little mercy now. The fruits of his labor fall and rot slowly on the ground. His work is almost over. It won't be long. He won't be around. I love my father. And he could sure use some mercy now. My church and my country could use some mercy now. As they sink into a poison pit, it's going to take forever to climb out. They carry the way to the faithful who follow them down. I love my church and my country. They could use some mercy now. I wonder what that might look like. What would the world be like if we got busy in small ways, in local ways, in, in the desk next to mine, the person in front of me right now ways? What, what might it look like if we started spreading mercy around? One story. A true story. A story about the notorious Leroy Nicky Barnes drug gang in Harlem. And then I'll sit down. If you weren't living in New York City in the 1970s, you might not know that the Nicky Barnes gang ran one of the most profitable and violent heroin rings this country has ever seen. Barnes himself seemed untouchable. They, they, they didn't think they could catch him. He was a, a flamboyant dresser with a knack for avoiding the law. Leroy Barnes was the inspiration for the song Bad, Bad Leroy Brown, baddest man in the whole, you know how the song goes. Eventually, though, the FBI caught up with him. In 1977, Barnes was arrested, and he turned state's evidence. Barnes implicated 109 other people, including his own wife, in all sorts of crimes. And one of the people he implicated was Robert David. Two years ago, Robert David showed up at the side door of this church. He was looking for our street outreach worker, John Sheehan, standing in the back right there. Robert needed help. He was penniless, he was homeless, he was struggling with PTSD. Robert's parole officer directed him our way. Robert, you see, hadn't had much luck getting assistance anywhere else. And I suppose that makes sense. After all, Robert had just finished serving 27 years in prison for murder. Things started to change, though, when Robert walked through the door at 7 West 55th Street. He started a conversation with John. 
One conversation turned into another visit and more conversations and then a relationship. And we began to learn through this about Robert. After all those years in prison, he was struggling mightily. So this church went to work. I I should say y'all went to work because without your support, the merciful climate we're trying to create here would not exist We helped Robert get Social Security benefits. We got him placed in a shelter. John Sheehan says he's never been hugged so hard as when Robert found out that we'd secure medical, mental health treatment for him. On his frequent visits, Robert started to pray in our chapel. He described the Kirkland Chapel as the most peaceful place he'd ever been in his life. Along the way, Robert started to trust us, to care about us, to love this church. And he wanted to give back. He wanted to help. He'd walk through the door and say to John, John, you need me? I'm here for you. He'd push wheelchair-bound homeless friends around. He'd sit by that bench out there by the security desk and, and volunteer when visitors would walk in to show them around the church. He became our weekday tour guide. Slowly, steadily, Robert David, member of the notorious Leroy Barnes heroin gang and convicted murderer, became part of the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church family. So we were sad this past May when Robert, in the shelter where we had placed him, had a heart attack, and died. Over the summer, a touching service was held for him in the place he'd come to love, the Kirkland Chapel, and he's now buried in our columbarium. From time to time, his girlfriend comes to visit him there. Does this story seem weird to you? Unsettling? Mercy will do that. Mercy can feel risky and scary and at the same time sort of holy. (laughs) I think Jesus would approve of the way this has come out. I can imagine him right now in heaven elbowing St. Peter in the side. Hey, do you remember that guy who worked for the baddest dude in the whole damn town? What was his name? Robert David. Well, look at him now. He's right where he should be, tucked in alongside their beloved dead, tucked in next to everyone else who's been forgiven a $7 billion debt by the king. Hear now the benediction. Go from this place in peace with hearts full of mercy, trusting always in the love of God, in the grace of Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift 
followed by the word sermons to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift followed by the word sermons to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.